Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Monday, February 18th, 2013. This might be a bit of a short week. Uh, I am departing on Wednesday to go to Nashville, New Hampshire for the Liberty Forum. Uh, 2013. I hope to see many of you there, but I think you might get four shows this week and you'll probably get three. But I'll do my best to try to get something up for you guys while I'm on the road. I have a, a little segment of about 29-ish minutes with Mark Kirkwood as a follow-up on his stuff. Uh, Mark, of course, from Biotexture Training was on a couple weeks ago. And I was going to run that as a piece of a show. I may run that as a standalone short show for you guys so you have a show uh, an extra day. I can get a show done tomorrow. Uh, you got this show today. And I got Jim Phillips, so that's four. So we'll probably get four shows out this week. And uh, you'll have to just excuse me missing a show. Uh, getting up there to uh, the Liberty Forum is going to be important. I will be videoing that and making it available both as a video and as a podcast. Uh, but I think that my show is late enough on Friday that it won't be able to be put up on the web for you guys uh, from that location. It'll probably be when I get back for those that can't make it. Um, before we get into today's show, of course, which is all about you, this is a Monday show. Mondays are all about the audience. These are questions, comments, concerns, uh, suggestions, thoughts, and, and hopefully questions. I like lots of questions instead of just uh, here's a news article about something stupid the government's doing. I'm getting bored with that, guys. I, I don't mean stop sending it or nothing, but I mean, geez, you can kick the government every day with them doing stupid things. I'm more worried about what we're going to do to solve our own problems in our own lives and to be masters of our own lives. So questions are a great way that we figure that out. So I'd like as many questions as possible. But regardless of what you're sending me, the format to be on a show like this, send me an email. Send it to jack at survivalpodcast.com. There is no super secret squirrel email. That is my real email. It is the same email I use every day. Don't try to be sneaky and use LinkedIn or Facebook or something. Because I don't really pay attention to private messages that way. Email is the way to get in touch with me. But there's a format. Put in the subject line, question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, story for Jack. You get the format there. One word followed by four Jack. That goes into its own special folder to be screened and vetted for shows like this. It will increase your odds and will also help with a big thing. For some reason, no matter how mild I set the spam filtering in Outlook, a lot of stuff you guys send me goes into the spam folder. If it has four Jack in it, in the subject line, it's real easy for me to find it and yank it out of the spam folder and put it into the good folder and review it and possibly put you on the air. If you make up your own version of things and don't do it the way I tell you, it's a lot more likely it'll end up staying in there with the Viagra emails and the free energy emails and all the other garbage that comes to the spam filter. So, please help me help you follow the format. Before we get into the main topic today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Boy, um, I've been telling you guys to stock up on ammo since, well, oh, forever. And uh, we've had two big ammo shortages in the period of time that I've been saying to do that. We've had lots of time where you could stock up on ammo without paying ridiculous prices, like you have to do right now and like you had to do back in 2008. 
I think the current ammo scare will will dry up, will go away at some point, and costs will level out. It's only a matter of time. When it does, that's when you need to really stock up. For right now, look for the best deals you can find to buy what you need in quantity. And the best place I know to do that is BulkAmmo.com. Check them out today. You'll find that some of the prices right now are very, very high on like a thousand rounds of uh, 5.56. I asked them over there why why that's the case, and they said because they're doing whatever they have to to make sure they have some stuff in stock so they can fill orders, and they're working on the same margins they always have. So when they have to pay more, you have to pay more. At least you can get it there. You'll find that a lot of places still have it marked at the old price, but no back order, and you can't get any, so what good is that? BulkAmmo.com, the place to stock up on that other precious metal that everybody forgets about. It's called Copper Jacketed Lead. Next up today, our sponsor is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor who's been around since the very beginning. First company that stepped up and said, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it. We want to become officially partners with the survival podcast. They've done that. They've remained a good partner now for over four years. They've been taking care of this audience for four years. Um, and they do a great job. They also have a great discount buyers program. It's $49. And then you get discounts on everything they sell like for the rest of your life. Um, but you get it free if you're a member support brigade member. So not only are they a strong supporter of the show and a strong supporter of our work and a strong supporter of the audience, they're also a strong supporter of the member support brigade. Uh, probably one of the most premium benefits you can get by becoming an MSB member is their free buyers club membership. I mean, considering that an MSB membership is 50 bucks a year and their membership's 49 bucks, it makes your first year of membership effectively a dollar. Um, I guess those guys in Western Botanicals are just the two premium sponsors of the MSB, and there's a lot of other great deals. So that's a good segue in. If you want to help support this show, best way you can do it is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. You can do that for as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, which gives you a little bit of a discount. Or if you want an even bigger discount, if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder like a paramedic, active duty, or prior service, email me with service discount on the subject line. Uh, before, not after you join, ask me for the discount code and you'll get a discount that even makes you save more money. Still lets you support the work we're doing here. And the member support brigade will more than pay for itself. In addition to the two memberships, uh, the Western Botanicals membership and the Safe Castle membership, which have a value of $99 by themselves for my $50 a year membership, you will also get over $150 worth of free ebooks the day that you join. You can download them and keep them forever. So that takes you through about two and a half, three years of your membership with just those two benefits in the ebooks. And I continue to expand the value of the MSB for our members. Every once in a while people say, can I just contribute some money? No, you got to buy a membership because I don't take money for nothing. I provide a valuable product in return. I believe in entrepreneurialism and I believe in earning your keep. So that's the way I do business there. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the first thing that I want to cover with you guys today. Um, Paul Wheaton, good friend of the show, member of our expert council, been a, a repeat guest on the show. A lot of you guys have learned a lot from him, specifically in regards to Hugel culture, uh, or woody beds, as I like to call them, as far as what we're building here in America, has worked hard to capture footage of a uh, workshop on rocket stove technology. It's several days of footage, and people wanted it in a DVD. He's going to put it in a four-DVD series because, well, that many days don't fit into a DVD. Uh, he's going to add custom animation to it. He's going to go full-scale on the production so that when you get this, you actually can look at this stuff. And since you're not there hands-on the way students were at the workshop, there's enough animation and things like that to make it very clear how to do everything. 
specifically because some parts of it, if you do it wrong, could be dangerous, like hot water heating. If you don't do that right, you could blow something up. Um, and he's going to do a great job with it. But to produce that, he's going to need to raise about $18,000. The good news is, uh, with the contribution I threw in this morning, before I even started recording this, he was close to about eight. So that means he only needs to raise about another ten grand. I think we can help him do that today. He's got it running for a month. I think that's, it doesn't need to run that long at all. Uh, instead of me telling you more about what he's doing, I'm just going to play the video that he has on Kickstarter for you right now, and you can hear all about it. And uh, we'll come back and give you some thoughts, and we'll go on to the next thing we have to discuss today. Hi, my name is Paul Wheaton. I've created over 20 videos on rocket stove technology and given them away for free on YouTube. For those of you who haven't heard of rocket stoves and rocket mass heaters, this could be the cleanest and most sustainable way to heat a conventional home. Some people have reported that they heat their home with nothing more than the dead branches that fall off the trees in their yard. And they burn so clean that a lot of sneaky people are using them illegally in cities without detection. If you are sick of the fracking and other energy-based pollutions that are dominantly caused by heating, you might well be damned interested in this technology. Recently, there was a workshop far more advanced in rocket stove technology than anything else ever done. The workshop quickly sold out and people begged for it to be videoed. They promised that they would buy the DVDs. So, now the time has come for those folks to put their money where their mouth is. In looking over the footage, I see no way to compress this into one DVD. So I'm going to offer four different DVDs and folks can pick and choose what they want. When the workshop started, Ernie and Erica did their fire science demo. This is three and a half hours of information which will be packed into a two-hour DVD and the biggest expense will be to have animations made to help clarify some of the finer points. On Saturday, we built a rocket mass heater in 44 minutes. This was using a special core that was able to burn about a thousand degrees hotter than any rocket core previously built. This was a style of rocket mass heater that can be taken apart and loaded on a truck in under an hour. On Sunday, the focus was on hot water with this technology. We usually refer to this as boom squish because of the dangers of building these improperly. Finally, we created a J-tube rocket stove that could heat water faster than the propane-powered turkey cookers. And the rocket stove used just a few twigs. Just for fun, we used the J-tube rocket stove as a poor man's foundry and we reshaped some steel and iron. No need for fans or bellows like other foundries. This last DVD will also include footage for the pocket rockets. There you go, four DVDs. I'm up for doing it if you're serious about buying them. All right, well, uh, hokey, goofy, dunk, dunk, dunk music aside, it's pretty well put together presentation by Paul. I, I thought it was good enough to put in front of this audience and say, hey, 
He's been a good friend to our community. He's taught us a lot. Um, he's been great at cross-promoting uh, Permies and uh, Rich Soil with TSP and vice versa. So he's been a good friend to the community and a good friend to all of us. And if he wants to get this thing off the ground, I say, hey, you know, get on over there and make a contribution. You contribute as little as ten bucks if you want to. Uh, you can contribute a hundred bucks and basically get the DVD set when it's produced. So you're probably paying quite a bit more than you would for them uh, if you just waited and bought them. But that way you're a contributor and there's some other goodies thrown in that Paul gives you some recognition for helping out. I'm not saying everybody should do this, but I'm saying if you if if you've been thinking I'd like to help somebody out and get something uh, meaningful done, and uh, you got a little bit of seed money to do something like that with, this is a perfect example of when I talk about us solving our own problems versus waiting for the government to do it for us. Let's go on to the next one today. Okay, we've had a lot of questions about um, medications during a shit hit the fan scenario, and. This is actually from a pharmacist, so this is literally from the horse's mouth when it comes to advice on um, stocking up on your medications, how to do it legally and correctly. Summary, 90-day supplies are a good thing. Refill as early as possible. Find pharmacies in your area that will fill 90-day prescriptions. Hey, Jack, I'm a pharmacist. I have some thoughts uh, regarding the medication question that was posted in episode 1062. For maintenance medications, everyone, that's in all capitals, the emphasis supplied by me, should have prescriptions written for a 90-day supply if the doc will agree to it. Even if I can't fill it for 90 days at my pharmacy because of insurance limitations, I will enter the prescription into our system indicating that it was written for a 90-day supply and downfill per the insurance restrictions. I'm not sure what other states are like, but here in Kentucky, our board, our board of pharmacy says I'm violating Pharmacy Practice Act If I dispense more medication than the doctor wrote it for, i.e. dispensing 90 days worth when only 30 days was written, even if there are refills. And a shit at the fan pharmacist will likely cite this as the reason they can't fill more than the doc wrote for. But if it's written for 90 days, I'll go ahead and fill it for 90 days, even if the insurance won't pay for it. That brings up my next point. Paying cash for a prescription is always an option. And a shit hit the fan, go up to the pharmacy and ask pharmacy ASAP and fill everything off of insurance. Better to pay a little extra or a lot extra, depending on what it is, than do without a mod in a moderate length disaster. Next point, 90-day prescriptions, even when filled through mail-order pharmacies, t can't typically be processed through insurance up to three weeks early. Uh, can typically be processed through insurance up to three weeks early. People should be requesting refills on maintenance medications on these prescriptions three weeks before they're actually due. As a pharmacist, I don't raise an eyebrow if somebody is requesting a refill on maintenance stuff early. If you do this routinely, you'll gradually build up a stockpile of medication you're on. The corollary to this is that patients should request that the actual expiration date of the medication be indicated on the bottle in some fashion. When stored properly in a cool, dry place, the medication should be good until that date. Let me add my little takeaway from there. Your medication is good for a long, 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 long after the date. Long after the date. One more time for people that just have a fear of everything exploding and going wrong. Long after the date. The United States military did a shelf life extension program. Medications at 10, 15 years and more were seen as just fine, causing no problems for anybody at all 
whatsoever. The only thing that would begin to happen after a certain length of time is the, the effectiveness of the medication itself may begin to wane. So you may have to, in a long-term scenario, experiment with a little bit higher dosage, but... Even that was minimal to nothing at 10 years when stored in a cool, dry place with everything except liquids. Liquids go downhill fairly quickly, but uh, pills, uh, tablets, capsules, very, very robust long-term because the military got tired of throwing all this stuff away and commissioned a study. That study was briefly released under the Freedom of Information Act and then dried up and blew away like a fart in the wind. Why? Because the pharmacy companies, the pharmaceutical companies, I shouldn't say pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies, the drug manufacturers, had a conniption that people would find out the truth about the duration uh, of their medications. Pieces and parts of it are available here and there. The upshot. People always want to, I want to see it. I want to see it. Here's the upshot. Ten years, no problem. That's the upshot. All right? Let me go back to this gentleman's letter. I just have to throw that in there. In my opinion, the following types of prescription drugs um, should always be kept in an abundant supply. One, immune suppressants. Stuff used for organ transplant patients. Two, enoprene uh, epipens. Uh, epiprene pens, so epipens, for people with severe food or medical allergies. Three, diabetic supplies, insulin needles or pen needles if it's, if it's an insulin pen. Alcohol swabs, glucagon pens for treatment of really low blood sugar, and any oral diabetic medications. Four, blood thinners, stuff like cutamin, warfarin, and anti something drugs. If you're taking it, you probably know what I'm talking about. Blood pressure medications is number five. Six, anticonvulsants. Sorry for this long, this ran long. I hope it helps. Anytime I can be of help to you in the TSP community, I'd love to contribute. Thanks for everything you do for us. All the best, Hank in Kentucky. Well, Hank, thank you. It long wasn't a problem with that because it was all meat and potatoes the whole way through. Um, I think that's very good advice, and I think it's basically the advice we always get from medical professionals and pharmacists whenever we ask the question, Get the longest prescription you can, refill early, build up your stockpile, get another prescription, uh, wash, rinse, repeat until you get your 90-day supply or better put up. I just want to reiterate again, the expiration date on modern medications, if they're in pill, tablet, or capsule form, is, in a word, bullshit. I know that some people say, well, why is Jack giving this kind of advice? I'm repeating this advice. Um, from Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Dr. Bones, a practicing physician for over 30 years, who now in his retirement works in the preparedness industry, is my source for that information and my source for finding out about the government's shelf life extension program, which again, the actual, not the summary, but the full documentation, even though, even though it absolutely should be available under Freedom of Information Act, is almost impossible to find, and people have been threatened with being imprisoned or fined for distributing it. So do I have a copy? Yes. Will I distribute it? No, I'm not taking that risk. I'm telling you, I'm telling you what the results were. If you'd like to know more, pop on over to Doom and Bloom, uh, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy's website, and I'm sure you can find information if you search their site for Shelf Life Extension Program. Um, I don't know if things have changed. I don't know if it's now possible to get that document. Uh, without being threatened, but it's it's very, very clear that the people that don't want you to see it 
are not the United States military to commission the study. It's very clear that the people that don't want you to see it are Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Pfizer, etc. Okay? But their, their expiration date is bullshit. Period. And we need to not just discard medications because it's hit the expiration date. Cool, dry location, 10 years of storage. If anything, the only thing that will happen is the efficacy of the medication will decline over time. It will not become toxic. It will not hurt you. It will not kill you other than if you take too much of it like it would the day you bought it or mixed it with something you're not supposed to. But from a standpoint, if used as directed, it will, it will be, if anything, due to a decline in efficacy, less potentially harmful with side effects. All right. Um, with that, let's go on to another one. Here's what I'm going to call a small victory for the Second Amendment. I'd love to see possibly, you know, some companies that would actually have a bigger impact. Uh, maybe companies like um, Colt, uh, for instance, uh, take this stance. Um, but it's uh, it, at least it's something, and it's it's something that people have been asking about. From what I can tell, yes, legitimately, this is true. This is not an internet legend. Uh, let me read the article to you. It's on Breitbart, and uh, that, again, would tell you there's some legitimacy there. It's usually pretty well vetted to get on there. Uh, six gun companies have announced plans to stop selling any of their products to any government agency in states that severely limit the rights of private gun ownership. I'm just going to read you who and what they've said. LaRue Tactical, effective today in an effort to see that no legal mistakes are made by LaRue Tactical and or its employees, we will apply all current state and local laws as applied to civilians to state and local law enforcement government agencies. In other words, LaRue Tactical will limit all sales to what law-abiding citizens residing in their districts can purchase or possess. In other words, if you're a police officer in New York and you want to buy a high-capacity magazine and say, but I'm law enforcement, they'll say, tough crap. If your citizen can't buy it, you can't get it either. Olympic Arms. Due to the passing of this legislation, Olympic Arms would like to announce that the state of New York, any law enforcement departments, law enforcement officers, first responders within the state of New York, or any New York state government entity or employee or any such entity will no longer be served as customers. In short, Olympic Arms will not be doing business with the state of New York or any government entity or employee of such governmental entity within the state of New York henceforth and until such legislation is repealed and an apology is made to the good people of the state of New York and the American. American people. That's a little tougher of a stance. They're not even saying, you know, not only will we only sell you what your citizens can buy, we're just not going to sell to you at all. Extreme Firepower Inc., LLC. The federal government and several states have enacted gun control laws that restrict the public from owning and possessing certain types of firearms. Law enforcement agencies are typically exempt from these restrictions. EFI LLC does not recognize law enforcement exemptions to local, state, and federal gun control laws. If a product that we manufacture is not legal for a private citizen to own in its jurisdiction, we will not sell that product to a law enforcement agency in that jurisdiction. Templar Custom. We will not sell arms to agents of the state of New York that hold themselves to be more equal than their citizens. As long as legislators of New York think they have the power to limit the rights of their citizens in defiance of the Constitution, we at Templar will not sell them firearms to enforce their edicts. Templar Custom is announcing that the state of New York, any law enforcement departments, law enforcement officers, first responders within the state of New York, or the New York State government entity or employee will no longer be served as our customers. 
York Arms. Based on the recent legislation in New York, we are prohibited from selling rifles and receivers to residents of New York. We have chosen to extend that prohibition to all governmental agencies associated with or located within New York. As a result, we have halted sales of rifles, short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, machine guns, and silencers to New York's governmental agencies. Cheaper than dirt. I like this one. Recently, companies such as LaRue Tactical and Olympic Arms have announced they will no longer sell prohibited items to the government agencies and personnel in the states that deny the right to own those items to civilians. It has been and will continue to be cheaper than dirt's policy to not sell prohibited items to government agencies and or agents in states, counties, cities, or municipalities that have enacted restrictive gun control laws against the citizen. We support and encourage other companies share in this policy. Okay. This is what you need then, guys. You need people that are the big players that sell the large contracts to do the same thing. Will, will Colt, will, will Colt step up and, 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 and put their money where their mouth is? How many, how many larger companies will, will step up and say, you know what, New York? Sorry, business is off the table. We're not going to make you superior to your citizens. And somebody in the comments section said, isn't it the stupidest thing I've ever heard? Holding the police hostage. You know what? The police officers in these states, first of all, can go get guns through other channels. It's not like it's all squeezed off. I wish it was. I wish it was. Okay? But it's not. The whole point here is that an officer is no more protected by the Constitution than a civilian. In fact, this is what some people need to get through their thick, thick skulls. A police officer in the United States of America is a civilian. Let me say it again. Is a civilian. We have civilian law enforcement in this country by civilians. The concept that you're a civilian and a law enforcement officer is some other kind of super duper entity or something is a freaking lie. It is a absolute 100% lie. The whole point of law enforcement in the, in, in the United States is that they take an oath to the Constitution to defend and uphold the same. And they serve as a public servant with equal status to fellow citizens, and they have been entrusted with certain powers, but not additional rights. In other words, they have a power to detain somebody. Right, But that's not really that special now, is it? Because if I witness somebody in the commission of a crime, I have the power as a citizen to invoke a citizen's arrest and detain that person myself. Do I not? All right. What they have is the official capacity to enact and, 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 and prosecute the law and then turn the individual who's been apprehended over to an individual court system, which is also run by civilians where trials are in front of what? A jury a jury of our freaking peers. So police officers in the state of New York, if you don't like this, I call on you to start pushing in the other direction and asking why you're being asked to, to take away rights from your citizens that they should have. Because people might listen to you. And the more of you that stand up, because I know most police officers are extremely pro-Second Amendment. I have yet to meet a police officer that, that I ended up speaking to, that, that we went that far in a conversation, who did not turn out to be pro-Second Amendment. I know they're out there. I know that there's the freaking desk jockeys and there's the, the people that grew up and went to school and they never saw a gun until they went to the police academy and they've been trained and indoctrinated. I know they're there, but the vast majority of that blue line 
believe that they believe what they said when they said uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just part of getting a freaking job. It was an oath that they take seriously. So if you don't like it and you're in that group, let your voice be heard. Push back. Stand on the side of the citizens that you've sworn to uphold and to, to protect. Stand alongside them, not over them. I'm going to say this one more time. I keep saying it so that people will get it through their head. It doesn't really have to do with law enforcement, but it kind of does. The purpose of the Second Amendment was to ensure that the citizenry of the United States of America would be equal to the soldier so they would never serve at the boot of the soldier or those who command the soldiers. That is the purpose of the Second Amendment. It is not about duck hunting. It's not about goose hunting. It's not about deer. It's not about target shooting. It's about an equal status between citizenry and government. That's what it's about. So if the state of New York wants to enact this legislation, it should apply equally to their police officers. Because the citizens should be equal. Period. And if you don't like it, and you're in that group, I call on you to be a lead voice in championing, pushing back against this. Here's an interesting question on the Second Amendment. This is Jack, I'm just curious. This is from Larry. I guess the anti-gun folks could always take away gun rights with an amendment that overrides the Second Amendment or repeals it. That is somehow changing the wording of the Constitution to say that we no longer have a right to bear arms. Though I don't think it's likely to happen, I suspect they will simply make more unconstitutional laws instead. The reason I don't even answer that question is a lot of times when you see these internet warrior debates, you know, with all these armchair heroes um, pleading their case and fighting each other while our politicians laugh at you as they tax your brains out, um, you, you see people say, we could do that. There's no reason you can't change the Constitution. Well, then go ahead and try. Let's just, so that people can understand the gravity of a constitutional amendment and how much it takes to get done, let's look at it this way. First of all, There are 33 amendments to the Constitution. The first 10 with the Bill of Rights was done very soon after the ratification of the Constitution. So, in essence, since the Bill of Rights, there's only been 23. One was specifically used to repeal another. So, uh, we had the prohibition of alcohol and then an amendment to remove that amendment. So it was such a disaster, they went, geez, what do we do? That doesn't work. And yet we still can't seem to work out the prohibition of any substance that people used for themselves is probably not a very good idea. Leads to, a, leads to all the problems that we have with alcohol prohibition and doesn't actually prevent people from using substances in their own body. Um, in fact, we needed an amendment to make drugs illegal because by the Constitution, the way it was written, there was no way you could pass a law and it would pass constitutional muster. So there is this track record of amendments to our Constitution, but it's a very thin track record. It's not easy. Here's why. And this is like Constitution 101, but most American citizens today don't know what I'm about to tell you. Uh, there's only two ways that you can have a proposed amendment to the Constitution. One is the Houses of Congress, the Senate and the House, right, can both together propose a amendment. Now, it doesn't pass it. It just it puts it on the board. Okay, here it is. Are we going to do this or not? It requires a two-thirds vote of the House and the Senate. So you need 66 senators and however odd many congressmen, or, you know, House representative uh, members uh, to get that done. But it's not a simple, it's not 
it's 66.6%. All right, is the way that you, you need to look at it. Two thirds of the of the House and the Senate. And in reality, it doesn't do a lot if the House and the Congress do it because the other way that it can be done actually means it, it immediately has a good chance of passing because you wouldn't get this done unless there was support for it in the states. The other way it can happen is two-thirds of the state legislatures must call on Congress to hold a constitutional convention. So if you get the legislature of Georgia, Florida, and you know, 66% of the states on board with saying, let's have a constitutional convention and hash some stuff out, then you can get an amendment proposed. Once the amendment's proposed, it, does that mean that it passes? Okay, so we, we've got it proposed. 66% vote. Presidents willing to sign. Everybody's happy. Let's go. No, doesn't work. Okay? Then to ratify an amendment, it doesn't matter how the amendment was proposed, be it by constitution, uh, constitutional convention, or by the Congress uh, uh, doing it. Three-fourths of the state legislatures must approve the amendment proposed by Congress, or three-fourths of the states must approve the amendment being ratifying conventions. Okay, so what that means is you need a 66% majority to propose it. You need a 75% majority to pass an amendment. And it has to be done by your state representatives, your state senators, and your state uh, reps. That's how it has to be done. It cannot be done by the President and the Federal Congress. It can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done. And the little emails that you get from people raising money for various things that says Hillary Clinton's going to sign the gun ban or whatever, and, and they're going to do it, they're going to ram it through, they're going to make it a new amendment, they're going to sell us out to you. I, I'm sure they would love to do that, but the Constitution may have been used by toilet paper by our government, but it hasn't been flushed down the toilet just yet. And, and there are certain things that they know they cannot do. And it's about the only good thing to come out of the dichotomy. I say all the time, you folks that really think if we just gave the government over to the Republicans or over to the Democrats are delusional. They're criminals. These people are traitors. The only thing we have going for us with this system right now the way it is, is that the criminals are opposed to each other. And one set of criminals tries to get away with something, the other set of criminals will go after them because it's a power struggle. But it doesn't mean that both sides aren't criminals. You know, when you have two mafia families fighting for control of a city, you know, one of them might be a little bit nicer to deal with than the other, but they're both criminals. This is what we have. Now, I, I'm going to use this as a segue to something that I, because I don't have a specific email, but I get a lot of emails with different ideas of how we can fix the system. These ideas are usually things like term limits for our Congress and our, and our Senate. Uh, yeah, fine. I, I have no problem with it, but it's not really going to fix the problem. Um, I've had a lot of emails that are along and say, why don't we have a system where our congressmen, our senators, our elected officials have to have a contract with the people, like the Republicans' contract with America, where they say, these are certain things I will never do, and these are certain things I will do, and this is the way I will vote, and, this is what, and if I violate this, then you, I get thrown out of office. It's called an election. That's what an election is. Okay, It is our fault that these criminals are in control of our country. All these cutesy little ideas 
won't replace the fact that the American people have been lied to and have swallowed the lie, hook, line, and sinker. If you want your elected officials to have contracts with you, when they break their word, vote against them. Every single time. Every single time. You broke your word, you're out. Now, why can't we do the contract thing from a practical matter? There has to be some flexibility in there. Okay, There has to be, well, gee, nobody knew that two years ago when I was running for election. No one knew that we were going to run out of something or find an abundance of something or this country was going to attack us or our president against my recommendation and my vote was going to attack somebody else. And now we're in the middle of it. And even though I don't support it, if we're going to be there, we got to do it the right way or we got to do at least the best we can with what we have. I didn't want to, you see, this is the problem. You can't have government officials locked into if you don't, you're done because they're governing a moving train. And when the thing changes speed or velocity or switches tracks or falls off, things have to be done. That's why there has to be incredible trust. There has to be incredible trust placed in these people and all they do is crap on your trust. The only way you will fix this is for you and your fellow Americans to rise up in a peaceful, true revolution and get rid of these criminals. They're criminals. I don't use that word lightly. I don't use it for shock talk value. I'm telling you they're criminals. They've passed laws to make themselves legalized criminals. Do you know that your Congress, your senators and your members of the House of Representatives are able to do something that if anybody else in the world did it, they would go deep, deep, deep into federal prison. They're able to do it completely above board. They have no restrictions against and you would go to federal prison. Let me explain what I mean. Let's say that you, because of some type of job you had or some type of contract or some type of relationship, became privy to some information. Let's say that you knew before the market did that General Electric was about to get a huge government contract or something. You think senators and congressmen might know that? Yeah, okay, because they're the ones that give it to them. So they're about to get this contract, and their stock has taken a little bit of a beating. It's It's down, okay? Now, you know this contract. This is lock, stock, and barrel. This is coming. So then you act on that information, and you take and you go all in on GE because you know that as soon as the announcement comes out, they're going to go up 15 20%. So you buy in, and as soon as the announcement comes out, you also know that the contract ain't as big a deal as people are making out of it. So as soon as the stock goes up 15%, you sell and you exit. That sounds like you used information you had to make a smart play. It's called insider trading. And you will go to federal prison if you're caught doing it. If you're a congressman that's literally the person in the committee giving the contract out to General Electric, guess what? It's completely okay for you to do it. They're the only people that can do this and do it quote-unquote legally. They've legalized criminal behavior is what they've done. I know this is hard to hear, but the reality is Your government is far more a reflection of the people of this nation than you'd like to believe. If you talk to people outside of our circle and ask them, is the government's job to solve problems? They'll say yes. And at that point, it doesn't matter what political opinion they have. It's pretty much over. Because I want you to think about this. Can you see Franklin, Adams, Jefferson... Washington, um, Thomas Paine, all of the other members of the delegations of the Continental Congress 
that basically made the choice to commit treason and risk being hung and declare revolution, all huddled together at that hour where they realized that a vote for yes was a vote to commit treason against their mother country and found a new republic and risk everything, their lives, their, their sacred honor and their fortunes and the lives of their families to a king who could just say, just kill him. I'm, I'm done with them. Just kill them. No due process had to be had. If the king just wanted somebody off, they could just do it. Especially in this type of a thing, a revolution. They're considered terrorists. When they were making that decision to become what the government would call the call terrorists, do you think they said, you know what, the reason we're doing this is because we can create a free republic. A free republic where men can do as they please, but the government will solve their problems for them. If you can answer that with a yes, you don't know our history, you don't know our founders, you don't know the words of the men who created this republic, you don't know the spirit that they were operating underneath. You don't have a clue. I'm sorry, but you don't. That was the last thing on their mind. They wanted a place where men would be free to build their own destinies and their own lives. And it resulted in the greatest nation in every measurable way, ever being created. A nation that is now in decline. And it's sad. But you can't blame your government. In a republic, if the republic is, being, is doing anything, the people have chosen to allow it to be done. And that's as simple as it gets, guys. No cutesy little idea. No term limit. No nothing will separate the citizen from their responsibility to be a sentinel within their republic. There's no autopilot switch. There's no one to do it for you. You have to stand up and do it for yourselves. And when you say, well, what about everybody else? The bold action of one inspires the following actions of many. Let's take another one. How about we switch to a positive story? Um, this is in global development uh, section of the guardian.co.uk, UK paper. Uh, India's rice revolution. In a village in India's poorest state, Bihar farmers are growing world record amounts of rice with no GM, no herbicide. Is this the solution to world food shortages? Sumut Kumar was overjoyed when he harvested his rice last year. There had been good rains in his village of Darshwarpur in northeast India, and he knew he could improve on the four or five tons per hectare that are usually managed. But every stock he cut in on his paddy filled near the bank of the Sakhi River seemed to weigh heavier than usual. Every grain of rice was bigger when his crop was weighed on old village scales. Even Kumar was shocked. There was not six or even ten or twenty tons. Kumar, a shy young farmer in Nahanalanda district, India's poorest state, uh, Bihar, had only using farmland manure without any herbicides grown an astonishing 22.4 tons of rice on one hectare of land. This was a world record with rice being the stable food of more than half of the world's population of 7 billion. It's big news. It beat not just the 19.4 tons by the father of rice, the Chinese agricultural scientist Yang Lungping, 
But the World Bank-funded scientists at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines and anything achieved by the biggest European and American seed and general, uh, GM companies, it was not just Samur Kumar, uh, Krishna, Nitish, Sanjay, and Biljay, his friends and rivals, and uh, Davenpura all recorded over 17 tons. So it wasn't just one guy that did it. And many others in the villages around claim to have more than doubled their usual yields. The villagers at the mercy of erratic weather uh, are and used to going without food in bad years celebrated. But the Bular State Agricultural Universities didn't believe them at first. While India's leading rice scientists muttered about freak results, the Lalanda farmers were accused of cheating only when the state's head agricultural head of agriculture, a rice farmer himself, came to the village with his own men and personally verified Sutmut's crop was the record confirmed. I want to point out something there. Listen to this. Their head of agriculture is a rice farmer. Hey, um, how many of our secretaries of agriculture in the last 50 years in America have been farmers? Anybody want to go find that out for me? Actual farmers. Not people that owned agricultural, real farmers that actually went out there and did the work themselves. I, I bet it was none. I, I bet it was none. I bet you definitely in the last 30 years, none. Anyway, let's go back to the uh, article. Uh, I want to just kind of get and skip down to how they did this. What did they do different? Instead of planting three-week-old rice seedlings in clumps of three or four in waterlogged fields, as rice farmers around the world traditionally do, the Davidspura farmers carefully nurtured only one half as many seeds. Then they transplanted the young plants in the field one by one when much younger. Additionally, they spaced them at 25-centimeter intervals in a grid pattern, kept the soil much drier, and carefully weeded around the plants to allow air to get to the roots. So everybody thinks of rice and patties. That's really about weed suppression, and the rice can survive it, but they don't necessarily need it. Americans, we don't use centimeters very much, so I'm thinking that these things were planted 9 to 10 inches apart. 25 centimeters is about 9 to 10 inches to help you visualize kind of what these guys were doing. Back into the article here. Um, the premise that less is more was taught by Rajiv Kumar, a young Bahir state government extension worker who had been trained in turn by Anhil Verena, a small Indian NGO, that's a non-government organization called PRAN, uh, Preservation and Proliferation of Rural Resources in Nature, which has introduced the SRI method to hundreds of villages in the past three years. While the Green Revolution that averted Indian famine in the 1970s relied on improved crop varieties, expensive pesticides, and chemical fertilizers, SRI appears to offer a long-term sustainable future for no extra cost, with more than one in seven of the global population going hungry and demand for rice expected to outstrip supply within 20 years. It appears to offer real hope even a 30% increase in the yields of the world's small farmers would go a long way to alleviating poverty. But this isn't a 30% percent increase right this guy grew 21 tons right and most of the people that were doing what he did grew at least 15 16 tons so if we can go to 15 tons as an average um and you're looking at a normal average being about five tons you're looking at a a, a exponential increase of three times as much or two times as uh, three times as much now, there's another thing not really said in this article that I think we need to start thinking about. If we want to restore farming is a valid profession 
in the world, not just the third world, but even in this country. Okay, this takes a lot more work. And a hectare, let me give you guys kind of what you're talking about land there, because I know hectare is something that Americans tend to not really understand either. But a hectare is about two and a half acres, 2.47 acres. Call it two and a half acres. So if you can grow 20 tons of rice on a hectare, I mean, you really are at a point where If people weren't getting rice for, you know, 20 cents wholesale, if you look at actual price and if farmers start selling either to consumers or only one layer away from consumers and are selling a premium product like this, you're looking at viability on, on two and a half acres. You're looking at a farmer that can, in, in India, I mean, really, but I mean, anywhere in the world, you're looking at a farmer that can pay his bills. If we take these methodologies and we incorporate permaculture principles into them, And instead of growing 20 tons of rice, somebody like this on their two and a half, three acres grows 10 tons of rice um, and, and sells it as a premium organic product. And on top of that, they use the land to grow another 10 tons, tons of other things, which they probably can do with these other methods. You start to get a lot more viability and resiliency as a farmer, and you start to create a much more holistic system. Because even doing this, and every farmer having one or two hectares to do it on, is still monocropping. It still has its own limitations. But if we start, instead of worrying about the fact that these methods require more human labor, if we start allowing that human labor to actually use these methods, develop these methods, research these methods, so that that human labor, instead of being a bunch of migrant workers in the back of a truck that go from field to field to field to pick lettuce, because supposedly Americans won't do it, and we let that go, that the, the labor is actually being done by the person that freaking owns the land and profits from it and can build wealth with it, then we've got something. Uh, because right now people don't give a damn about farming the way that they used to. Because most people have never farmed a day in their life. They, most people have never grown a garden a day in their life. They have no idea how much work is done, and it's seen as a mechanized process. But we're watching the wheels of that machine fall off. I mean, literally fall apart. Uh, we're getting into a point where we're not sure where we're going to get all the phosphorus we need to pour on the ground. We don't need to be doing it in the first place. I think China controls like 60% of the world's phosphorus reserves. If that goes into a shortfall, who do you think they're going to you know, use it for first, us or them? We'd use it for us first, wouldn't we? I mean, is there even anything wrong with the fact that if you control something, you take care of your own family before you take care of others? I mean, I, I, don't, have, I don't think most people have a problem with that concept. Why would you think they would do it any differently? There are so many things that are falling apart with the food system. And, and everybody just wants to believe it can go on forever. And it can't. This is just another example of how intensive management of small properties can increase yields. And you say, well, where are we going to get all these people to do this? Hey, we got a lot of people sitting around on their ass doing nothing right now. Some of them want to sit around on their ass doing nothing. You know what? If you let them get hungry instead of feeding them, they might get up and start doing something. There is so much opportunity out there right now for people to do this. It's not easy. And I don't mean the work. I mean getting in in the first place. It's not easy. But there's ways to do it. You know, um, you can lease land. Start filing an agricultural tax return, even if you don't make any real profit. Develop that, and then you can get an agricultural loan to buy agricultural land because you have a track record of farming. I learned that from one of Mark Shepard's articles in uh, Acres USA magazine. That's, you know, his interns, the first thing they get is a Schedule F. 
which is the, the which is the form to file as an ad. So his interns come in, and basically it's a farm-to-farm lease, and his interns are effectively leasing the land that they're working while they're interning. Uh, now, they're still actually acting as an intern, but it goes down as a trans, as a farm-to-farm transaction, and when they finish a two-year internship, they can actually go out and secure money for property. And this is like, okay, so if you look at woofing, worldwide opportunities on organic farms, the people that are on there that are listing, hey, come intern on my farm, they need to be informed about this. This is what they need to be doing with their interns. Your interns, farmers, are not just somebody to come do all your work for next to nothing. They're there to learn. And they're learn, learning not just how to grow a potato, but the business of farming. That's, that's what we need if we're going to restore this. But what we also need is people that can do it to just do it. I mean, seriously, we've got to get out of this asking for permission crap. Do you think this guy in India asked for permission to do this differently? Uh, or somebody came in and said, hey, this works better. And he said, you know what? That's what I'm going to do then. Yeah, he, he did it in a way that they didn't even believe him. He's like, I got 21 tons here. Like, liar, cheater. Isn't that the typical reaction you get from people when you break out on your own and do something and it works? Cheater. You're a cheater. No, he's not a cheater. He did something that makes perfect sense when you think about it. If you actually look at the idea of allowing the plant to grow bigger, um, controlling weeds without flooding, getting more oxygen into the roots, pushing more, of course it's going to produce better. Of course it's going to produce better. There's nothing that would tell you that it wouldn't. This is very interesting. I want to make sure that uh, uh, Ben Falk up in New Hampshire that's growing rice in New, uh, or Vermont, is growing rice in, in Vermont, uh, gets a copy of this. I'll send him a copy, and hopefully he still listens to the show daily, because uh, this is something I'd like to see him experiment with a little bit. And I know he was doing some work growing rice in buckets in different stages of moisture to see what happened, but I think this might be a bit of a game changer. So, uh, Ben, if you're listening, man, give it a shot. One of your patties this year. Let us know how it works out. It would certainly be a lot less planning. Right, how about a gun question for a little bit of uh, variety, more of an ammo question. So this is from Lauren. Lauren says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the 308 versus the 306 or any previously popular uh, rifle round. Seems the 308 is hugely popular. I've done a bit of reading and I see the draw to it, but I also see some drawbacks as well. Thanks, Lauren. Um, 308 and 306 is not something I can hash out in an entire show and get anybody to change their mind about anything anyway, um, let alone in a segment. Um, but a real quick history of the 306 and the 308 and how one basically is the father of the other goes like this. In 1903, the United States was in a quest to come up with a better rifle round than the standard-issued 30-40 Craig. Uh, they wanted something that would reach out a little bit further, hit a little bit harder, uh, and they looked at what the Spanish were doing in the 7mm world uh, and getting their asses torn up in uh, a battle in Cuba was part of this concept of coming up with a better round. And that led to the 30-40 Craig, and eventually that led to the 306. And the 306 was a game changer in America and American firearms, and it was quickly adopted by the sporting community because people quickly snapped to the, the concept. If instead of putting those full metal jacketed rounds in there, you put an expanding 30 caliber round in there, you had a gun that uh, a person could use in the, the swamps of Georgia or the mountains of Pennsylvania for uh, white-tailed deer, and a person out in the west could shoot an elk with, and you could go up into Alaska, and it might be a little bit undergunned for grizzly, but unless it was charged, and it would do the job on anything and everything on the North American continent, 
And yet it wasn't such an insane blow up round that if you shot a 120 pound deer that it would turn it inside out. So it was like this perfect balance. From that came an entire plethora of rounds. Uh, the 280 Remington, also known as the 7mm Remington Express, are both simply the 30.06 neck down to um, uh, .28 caliber. Uh, the uh, .270 is the 30.06 neck down to .27 caliber. .2506, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. People started necking it up. The .338.06, the .35 Whalen, necked up to .33 and .35 caliber. And there was a whole litany of wildcats based on this case. And many of what you would call long-action, modern center fire rounds, all the ones I just named, are nothing but variations of the .30-06. This was used all through World War II and into the Korean War, or Korean conflict, depending on what you feel like you need to call it, because somebody says it's not really a war. And tell the men that fought it it wasn't a war, and they'll probably smack you in the face. If you can find, uh, there's not a lot of them still left around out there. Because to them, it was their war. And um, the U.S. started experimenting with, hey, can we basically have our soldiers carry more ammo and get the same performance and slightly reduce the weight of the weapon? And a genius somewhere figured out, hey, with higher pressure powders, if we just cut that case back and cut the 30.06 shorter, we can basically still get the same performance out of it. And with high-pressure ball powders, the 308 is, for all intents and purposes, equivalent in ballistics to the 30.06 with the rounds that would be used in uh, combat. As you start pushing the heavier bullets in the 220-grain range, the 30.06, 180-grain and up, starts to take over its bigger capacity, but it's still marginally better. As far and better is relative because death doesn't come in degrees. So the 308 became the the modern version of 3006. We could take a half inch off of a rifle that would save us a few ounces. We could carry more ammo for our troops because the ammo weighed less. And when you're talking about tens and millions of rounds, then you're talking about um, a significant cost savings to the government because there's slightly less powder in it. There's a little less perceived recoil. It's not that, but that's that's where it came from. And, and that's how we got there. Then, guess what happened? The 243, which is a neck down, uh, 308, uh, the 7mm 08, right? Um, this, you know, the, the 260 Remington, which is a 6.5mm, uh, neck down version of the 308, the 358 Winchester, which was the neck down. So there's this entire family of cartridges. That are nothing but necked up and necked down 306 and 308s. So then the Magnums were part of this whole evolution, belted and on. But here's, here's the upshot of all this. If you said to me, Jack, I'm trying to decide between a 270 uh, Winchester, a 306, uh, or a 308, or uh, a 7mm 08, and, and I, I want to hunt deer and, and, and big game in America, which one should I buy? I'd say, I don't care. I don't care. There's so much lathered up by magazines and marketing and stories and you know what, what, what any guns and ammo or any other gun magazine. What are you going to put on the cover? The 306 that's been around for over a hundred years, or the new you know super duper soft tip long range 30 caliber lever Lucian hyper duper round that some guy cooked up. 
Is there any enhancements? Is there any advantage to that new round? Maybe, maybe not. And even when there is, how much is it? Because the reality is this. No round will make up for the shooter. And when it comes down to it, when you look at center fire rifle rounds, specifically 27 up into around 35 caliber, unless they're specialty rounds that are slower or faster, or whatever, they're all inherently equal in performance on the game that they're designed to perform on. Even range estimation and shooting long range, there isn't that big an advantage over the flat shooting 270 Winchester versus the 3006. If the shooter can do his part, then both of them are adequate for shooting deer size game at 400 yards and, and even further. Will the 270 drop a little bit less at that range than the 3006? Yeah, but if you can't make the shot with the 270 or the 3006, you can't make it with the 270 either. There's all types of feuds that have gone on. In the end, it works out like this. Shoot these different guns. Rent them, borrow them, whatever. Find what you're comfortable with. Find what you can do the best work with. And that's the right round for you. And when people say, well, the common rounds, like there's more. Yeah, really? Go get some 308 right now. Or go try to buy some 270 Winchester. I mean, I've done that one before. So I can't solve the problem of which is better, 308 or 3006. I can tell you from a nostalgic standpoint, the 3006, because it is the father and grandfather of so many wonderful rounds, holds a special place in my heart. It does. When I hold a 3006 in my hand, I'm holding the round that went through World War I, World War II, the Korean conflict, even a bit of the Vietnam conflict. And I have that history. And I'm holding a 308 before it ever was a 308. I'm holding a 243 Winchester before it was ever a 243 Winchester. It is the, it is the genesis of the majority of non-magnum centerfire sporting rounds. So it has that history. But in the end, if you hand me a 7mm 08 and send me off elk hunting, I can do just as well with it. I really can. I know some people would doubt that and say it underperforms. You look at the terminal ballistics, and it's a hard-hitting round. Um, and again, I think the biggest thing that we need to remember about rounds, specifically for hunting and for self-defense, death doesn't come in degrees. One thing's not deader than the next. It's either dead or it's not. And if the job's done and the shooter is up to the task, then debating the caliber is really kind of pointless. Let's take another one. Here's an interesting question. It's from Marie. Marie says, Hi, Jack. I love your podcast and listen to it all the time when driving to work appointments, although I'm catching up right now. I just listened to your podcast on self-directed IRAs. You mentioned in there a few times you do not believe in IRAs. Well, I do believe in them. They do exist, and that's not quite the way I mean it either. I'll get to this in a second. I actually just started a new job career, and now I'm an independent contractor, sole proprietor. I'm looking at a job. I'm looking at a lot at my future now since I no longer qualify for Social Security. That's not true at all, by the way. Uh, not that I think it'll be there in the future anyway. Would you suggest for future what would you suggest for future planning my job moves people around a lot when promoting so it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy a house right now what should i be doing to prepare for the future especially assuming that everything doesn't go sideways i need to prepare but i really disagree with the standard financial advice that's given okay so let's start out with a couple misconceptions one i don't believe in iras and i don't just mean it facetiously like i don't 
believe in it like like an atheist says, I don't believe in God, right? Uh, of course, I, I believe in IRAs. They exist. I don't believe that it's the best way to structure my money right now. I'm not saying that's the case for everybody, but I just feel that the government has too big an eye on changing the rules of an IRA. If I was going to set up a new IRA right now, I would do a Roth. One, because if they follow the rules, it's a better investment. And all you financial liars that say, your tax rate will be higher now than it is. You're full of shit because you don't know what my tax rate is going to be when I retire. The Roth in almost every scenario other than you're going to retire in two years and you're starting to save now, the Roth always wins. The Roth always wins. The Roth always wins. But the Roth has what I call a get-out-of-jail-free card. And what I mean by that is let's say over the next five years I dump uh, $50,000, $10,000 a year into an IRA. And it's a Roth IRA. And let's say that in five years after I've put $50,000 of my own money into an IRA, the government keeps digging its fingers in the IRA 401k pie. And I now have, after investing $50,000 into my IRA due to smart investing and uh, being smart about what I buy and how I buy it, um, $70,000 in the account. I've made a $20,000 profit. I could then choose to risk the 20 to the government and what they might do with my IRA, and I could suck out the $50,000 that I've put in the IRA, and I don't have to pay any taxes or any penalties on it whatsoever because I've already paid the taxes because it's a Roth. So I can get the invested principal out of the vehicle. So it's... It is a, as soon as I, I was always the fan of the Roth over the conventional. As soon as I verified that wasn't a lie, that wasn't bullshit, it wasn't a rumor, you really could do it, it really was legal, I went, aha, this is at least I can get what I put in back and take it somewhere else. So if I'm gonna do a Roth, I'm gonna do an IRA, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an IRA, I'm gonna do a Roth, alright? So it's not that I don't believe in it, it's that I think a conventional IRA is stupid! Stupid, stupid, stupid. Now, your money's already in one. I wouldn't necessarily pay the penalties for conversion. You have to make that decision individually. But opening up a new one, Roth or die. Okay? And anything else is stupid. You want to be taxed on the money, not the gain on the money and the money. See, a conventional IRA works this way. I don't pay taxes today. But when I take the money out, I pay taxes on all the money put in plus all the money gained. In a Roth, I put the money in, and then I've already paid taxes on it, and I take the money back with no taxes, and the gains are not taxed if I wait till retirement age. So that's my real feeling on Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks versus conventional. If I had an employer that did not offer a Roth option in a 401k, I would not participate in a 401k. The only way I would participate in any retirement account is going to be if there's a Roth option and if I have an employer that doesn't do a significant match and I'm talking 50 cents on the dollar, right? 10 cents on the dollar, I'll take care of my own finances without the five funds that your financial liar said I get to pick from, okay? 50 cents on the dollar and up, I might contribute to a Roth with my employer. Anything else, just pound sand. Keep it. I don't want it, okay? Um, anything other than that, I'm going to go off on my own and do. My problem with IRAs is that the money that you've earned in there is held hostage. We can get around the principal with the Roth. You might need that money someday before you retire. You shouldn't have to ask for it. My other problem is there has been greater and greater attempts by the government to figure out how to get their little meat hooks into that IRA pie. Um, I don't like to not know the future of my money. I don't mean its value. I mean its future. How will that money be treated? Right? 
That's, that's one thing I want to know as an investor and an entrepreneur. How is my money going to be treated? What, what, what will it be subject to? See, once I have money, the only thing it's subject to, unless it gains new money, and then the new money is only subject to it, is inflation. That's the only thing my money is subjected to once I possess it, unless I spend it or grow it. I can keep it, I can invest it into anything I choose to, and basically it's not subject to anything. All right? Again, except inflation, which is its own problem. But I can mitigate that through smart purchases with said money. When it's in a 401k or an IRA, it's subject to a lot of different forms of treatment that can change when the government decides it doesn't like the deal that it made in the past. And if you think the government is good at keeping its word, talk to a Native American and ask them about a treaty and ask them about the government keeping their word. And they'll tell you that you probably shouldn't trust the government to keep its word. In fact, what you should trust the government to do is to eventually break its word when the benefit of breaking its word outweighs the gain from keeping its word. That's pretty much how the government works. They go, well, keep our word right up until it's better for us to break it. When we can get away with it and it's better for us, we're going to break our word. That's what they do every freaking time. So what I would suggest is that you understand this. You can invest your money in anything that you could possibly hold in an IRA without putting it in an IRA and subjecting it to those considerations. If you want to put it in an IRA, do a Roth where at least the invested principal can be extracted without penalty. And I think that a Roth is a relatively safe play that way, but there's a limit to how much you can contribute. So you're going to have amounts that exceed what you can put into a Roth if you're doing a good job of saving and investing. So it doesn't matter if you hold Ford in an IRA versus holding Ford uh, independently. And I'm not saying to buy Ford. I'm just giving that as an example. You can hold Ford stock either way. And the thing about it is people will tax deferment, tax deferment. Let me explain something about tax deferment. If I'm holding Ford stock at $10 a share and this year it goes up to $15, I don't pay any taxes unless I sell. The only thing I'm going to be taxed on holding the stock is the dividend. So I think the problem is a lot of people have been misled about how advantageous tax deferrals through IRAs and 401ks are. You, if you're holding stocks, mutual funds, you're not paying taxes on them anyway unless you sell the shares other than you will pay taxes on the dividends, which hopefully over time are significantly less than the overall growth rate of the value of the underlying shares. The dividend, should, I mean, in a good investment, the value of the share and its increase in, in value over time should be in excess of what dividends pay out in any well-run stock that's going to have a good dividend to pay you anyway. If you can find me the converse, a stock that's so solid on dividends that over a 20-year period it's more of a dividend play than a shareholder play and it's a safe investment, that's a stock for me. I like dividend-producing stocks. I like them in my Roth IRA. Again, it's not that I'm against IRAs. I just don't think all your money should go there. And I think conventional IRAs are stupid, stupid, stupid things to open. And I think anyone that's going to email me now and tell me about the tax rate issue, it's going to be taxed less when you're retired. Don't bother. Don't waste your time. If you're already typing the email, delete it. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to read it because I know that you don't know that. I know that there's no way you can tell me what my tax rate's going to be when I'm 69 years old. Because you have no idea what anybody's tax rate is going to be when they're, when they're 69 years old. You can't tell me what my tax rate, even if you know my income, is going to be in five years. So you certainly can't tell me what my tax rate's going to be in 20 years. 
You have no idea. You have no idea. You have no idea. Stop believing the bullshit that you've been trained to parrot and repeat. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up today. The last thing I want to finish up today is, is I, I do a lot on gardening. I do a lot on permaculture. I do a lot on food storage. And, and the reason I have such a focus on food is because we all need it. We all need our daily bread, even though I don't eat bread per se, but you get the point. And if we don't have nutrition, we die. It's the biggest um, market in the world, food. There's, there's nothing bigger than food. Absolutely nothing. Oil is not as big as food. If you add up all of the dollars spent on any given market, food's the biggest because there isn't a place in the world where humans don't need food. And there are places in the world where humans don't need oil. And they don't need natural gas. And even though there's places that people have it, they use it in far moderation compared to what we use. But pretty much, the caloric intake requirements of individual humans for health are pretty static and pretty constant throughout the entire planet. We may have different diets and different ways we get them, but food is the most important thing in the world. And I am heavy on this because I see the, the, the problems in agriculture. I see the problems in our food production and delivery systems. And I know that the cost of food will continue to accelerate uh, with inflation at a rate that I think will exceed standard inflation rates. In other words, I think that the, the cost of rice will have an inflation rate that is more rapid than the inflation rate of buying a car or a house. That food is posed to be one of the best investments you can make in the future because it's a need that will never go away and shortages will increase the cost of food. But who am I? I'm just some dude with a podcast that started yelling at people in his car four and a half years ago and enough people listen that I'm blessed enough to be able to have an audience and a business based on talking every day, right? So I don't know jack diddly crap about investing really, right? That's what some people would say anyway. Um, what if I told you Warren Buffett seems to agree with me? Consortium, including Warren Buffett, to buy Heinz for $28 billion. In a region liberally uh, doused in Heinz traditions, the news released this morning that the Pittsburgh Ketchup Company has agreed to be acquired for $28 billion by outside investors, which is guaranteed to send shockwaves through the community. William R. Johnson, the chairman and president and CEO, acknowledged that this, that this morning at the press conference of Heinz headquarters in PPG Place downtown. Quote, it's truly a historic moment for the H.J. Hines company, as well as customers, employees, and the city of Pittsburgh, he told the media gathered uh, for details on the agreement. Later, when reporters were pressing for more information on the Pittsburgh's role in the company's future under new ownership, he noted that keeping the headquarters here is in the contract agreed upon by the investment consortium composed of Berkshire Hathaway and 3G Capital. I told him Pittsburgh was non-negotiable, he said. Mr. Johnson, who was joined at the press conference by Alex Beffring, a managing partner at 3G Capital, said the company has about 1,200 employees in Pittsburgh. The company no longer makes products here, but has its headquarters downtown and research facilities in Marshall. You read the rest of it for yourself, but there's a couple things at play here. One, it's in the contract that they have to stay in Pittsburgh. Oh, no. In the words of Paul Wheaton, that's just marketing. Because what contract? The contract they made with the people they bought the company from? How long can that be held uh, valid? Uh, but they have no need to move the, the headquarters. The headquarters could end up being 15 people 10 years from now. I'm not saying they're going to, but I'm telling you that when somebody acquires another company, the people doing the selling get to talk all about how they've looked after the people that they've sold, and the people that do the buying get to make the decisions and get to do their things their way. That's because they bought it. 
The other thing to understand here is this company is going to experience what you would call a leaning out. Uh, they're going to start whittling away that 1,200-person workforce pretty damn fast. I, you know why I know that? Because that's what they always do. Every company that ever buys any other company starts to lean out a workforce. First of all, they've brought massive capital with them. They're probably going to push some sort of a merger. They might even go out and buy another company and merge it into Heinz and make Heinz the bigger fish. I don't know, but I guarantee you there's a plan here. The plan with this is in Buffett's like, <laughs> you know what, let's, uh, you and I, capital, uh, company, whatever this capital company is called, 3G Capital, let's, uh, let's pony up 28 billion and we'll just, we'll just let it run the way that it's running. We're just, we're just buying the stock basically and they can continue to, no, no. See, when, when an investor buys a company, they buy it the same way an investor buys a house. If I'm buying a house as an investor and I mean to make money from this house, I want certain things to not be quite right if I want to sell the house to somebody else. Uh, or I want to be able to increase the rental value of the property. In other words, I'm looking for a house that isn't the way I would make it. It has the potential to become what I would turn it into. So when I go into a house and I'm an investor, I like to see paint peeling off the walls. As long as the walls are solid. right? I like to see ugly carpet. I like to see dated appliances. I like to see all the crap that makes that house sit on the market. And in fact, if I'm smart and I want to sell my company, I actually want to mess a few things up before I sell it. How do I know this? Because I've watched people do it. I was, I was part of two companies that were required. And I can absolutely tell you in the case of one of them, the company was purposely put into a sideways skid to prevent it from having growth so that the members of the board of directors would be open to selling the company because if it was making the money that it could have been making, they would have never wanted to sell. So the, the head of the board wanted the company sold and purposely took action to prevent growth in the company so that the investors would want to take their money out so that they could sell it to a capital acquisition company kind of like this. The first thing that company did was come in and say, other than people that don't want to get on board with the program and the updates that we're going to make and the things that we're going to do to take this company forward, don't worry about your job. Your job is safe. And within a year, 50% of the people that work there were gone. Um, 20%, I would say, were people like me. We're like, yeah, we've seen this before. Goodbye. We're leaving. We just left. And we were the most, and I'm not being arrogant here, the most talented people in that company walked out the door in the first month after the acquisition. They walked out into better opportunities. They weren't sent packing. They, walked, they, they, were, they were courted by other places to go put their time and talent in. And as soon as they saw what was going on, they were out of there. We called the guys that acquired the company the Bobs. And those of you that are familiar with the movie Office Space will know exactly what I'm talking about. These guys were like retarded versions of the Bobs. They were as bad as it got. Um, I told the one guy when he was talking about how important he was to the whole operation and trying to get me to stay after I told him I was leaving. I said, dude, you're like a shark's tooth. He said, what? I said, you're like a shark's tooth. If you died in a car crash tomorrow, pop, another one would come up and take your place in a heartbeat and nothing would skip a beat. No one would even care that you were gone. And he just sat there blanked and I'm like, we're done now. I'm, I'll be packing my stuff up. I'm out of here. You know, um, that's the type of thing. I, and that's what's going on here. So, you're going to see a lot of promises made to the people of Heinz, and you're going to see them broken because that's what happens all the time. The bigger play, though, is why is Buffett throwing $28 billion bucks into a company like Heinz? Because they have a massive food distribution network. That equals customers, a captive 
audience of customers through which to push food sources, food substances. The, 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 the smart business acquisition, you're not buying the product the company sells. You're buying the customers the company has to sell to because you can then attach new products, new things to push into that channel. That's what this is, is channel acquisition. This is a $28 billion channel acquisition in the food delivery business. Buffett doesn't do things to be a nice guy. Buffett's not a nice guy. You can watch him eat ice cream cones or whatever and believe he's a nice guy. You can believe the bullshit about he only takes a little tiny salary and he, he pays a tax rate lower than his, his secretary and all this other crap. Or you can understand the truth. When you own a company like Berkshire Hathaway, you don't need a big salary because everything you could possibly want is handed to you and taken care of as a business expense that you don't pay taxes on. Okay, those people don't do things to be benevolent. They do things to make more money, more money, more money, more money. And that means that it's absolutely the case here that Hathaway, the whole corporation, Buffett and all his advisors and uh, 3G Capital see this as a play to make lots of money because they know the food industry is going to be stressed And you would think that makes it a bad investment. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Again, when you have stress in a market that's not elastic, it's an inelastic demand. There is, you know, gourmet chocolate chip cookies for $4 a piece. They're in elastic demand. In other words, they'll stretch and they'll yield, okay? In other words, all of a sudden at $4.50, the little yuppie that got laid off won't buy one with her coffee anymore. But then... Most of the food industry is inelastic demand. And, and what that means is no matter how much food costs, I'm going to eat something. Okay? That's the financial play here. And it justifies with everything I've been telling you now for almost five years about food, about prices, about inflation, about the future of our world and the future of our nation and the stress that is going to be applied to the agricultural markets is demand exceeds supply. So when you say when something's going to become a stressed asset and that wouldn't make sense to invest in it, it does if the demand for the asset is primarily inelastic, unyielding. I got to eat. If my belly's empty, I'll pay for food, period. Mass-produced, low-cost food item distribution network acquisition. This is not a purchase of Heinz Ketchup. This is a purchase of Heinz Corporation's distribution channel. That's what the investor wanted to get their hands on. And that should tell you how important food security should be for you in your future, both financially and logistically. Because they see what's happening before everybody else does. I don't know if you've paid attention to Buffett and Hathaway. They have a pretty good track record of being ahead of things. Like buying billions of dollars worth of silver under 10 bucks. You know what happens when you buy billions of dollars of something that's trading for like 8 or 9 dollars and it becomes 30 dollars a unit? You make billions and billions and billions in profit, and you take some of your billions in profit, now like it's chump change, $28 billion, and you go buy the distribution channel of one of the largest food producers in the world to get ahead of the next trend. We can't play that game. We don't have billions. We can play the game in our own lives, a microcosm, and pay attention to where the big money is going, 
and know those are the parts of your life that put a premium on shoring up now. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I could do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.